All right, I want you guys to think about something real spiritual in the next minute. I want you to think about your favorite sandwich. Even like meditate on it. My, like picture it in your mind. Like I said, a real good experience for Sunday morning church, I suppose. Because I'm going to talk about sandwiches for a few minutes. So let me use a BLT, a bacon, lettuce, tomato. That's not my favorite. Probably take me five minutes to describe for you my favorite sandwich, exactly how it's made. So we don't have time for that. We're just going to do a BLT as an example here. So my question is this. Would I like to eat a bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich, not all together, but each piece separately? And would you like to eat that? My answer to that is, you know, some pieces would be okay. They make sense by themselves. Others definitely do not. So would I like to eat bread by itself? I love bread. I could live on bread. But to me, bread's got to have something, like at least butter or honey on it. So I'm going to say no to bread. You might say yes. I'll say no. Would I eat lettuce by itself? No, lettuce is great in other things. I don't eat lettuce by itself. I'm not a rabbit. Would I eat a tomato by itself? A lot of people eat tomatoes, especially little cherry tomatoes. It's healthy for you. I know it myself. They've got to be in something else. So I wouldn't have a tomato. Would I eat bacon by itself? Oh, yeah, I'd have bacon by itself. You give me like 50 pieces of bacon, and I'm good there. That can be eaten independent of everything else. Would I have one or two tablespoons of mayonnaise? That is disgusting. I would never have that. Now, I would. I love mayonnaise in a BLT. I just wouldn't have it by itself. So the point is, some things make sense out of context. Most don't. They've got to have the rest of it. Ryan has mentioned in preaching through the Gospel of Mark, we'll be in Mark chapter 11 today, so maybe open up your Bibles, find that chapter. Ryan's mentioned several times that Mark employs a technique known as a sandwich. So what does he mean by that? Let's do a little review here. A sandwich in the book of Mark means this. Mark starts with one topic. We're going to pretend that's the top piece of bread or bun or loaf. Then he goes to what appears like a completely different topic. And that's the middle. That's the meat, cheese, onions, peppers, your favorite sauce, that kind of stuff. Then, number three, in that text, Mark returns to that first topic. That's the bottom piece of bread or the bottom bun or the loaf of the sandwich. So let's look at how this looks in a chart before we read the text. We'll get a little preview here. So in Mark 11... Uh, we're going to read first about a fig tree and how this fig tree comes to an end, meaning it gets killed. Then we're going to read about the temple. So do you see how fig tree, temple, man, those are unrelated. There's no commonality there at all. Uh, but they both end, so at least there's that commonality. We'll see more. And then third in our text, Mark is going to return to the fig tree. So that's the loaf again, the piece of bread again. Um, and he's going to introduce a phrase, this mountain, which is going to help kind of tie things together. So let's start into our outline here, the first third of our passage. And our title for this first third is going to be, The Fig Tree is Significant, and it's also Symbolic. 
So first third of our passage, we're starting at verse 12. Here we go. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, let me hit pause there for a minute so we can set our context here. I think we were last in this two weeks ago. If you remember, beginning of Mark chapter 11 is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Palm Sunday, the beginning of Passion Week. Jesus does not overnight in Jerusalem, however. Every night, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, he's back to a little village called Bethany about two miles east of Jerusalem in the country. So every morning he's walking into Jerusalem doing some teaching, at least the first three mornings, then he walks back. So here he's coming into Bethany, or from Bethany into Jerusalem, and he, Jesus, was hungry. Verse 13. And seeing in the distance, remember, he's not at Jerusalem yet, he's in the country, but he can probably see the city, it's about a mile away. A fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Now, if you know this story or skim read a little bit ahead, you'll see that he curses the fig tree and it gets killed. When I first read this story many years ago, I had two initial responses, and I feel pretty guilty about each one of them. They're not very godly responses to this story about the fig tree. So I'll share with you what they both were. The first was this. This is a pretty small, unimpressive miracle that Jesus performs. Killing a fig tree. How could you get any smaller than that in terms of miracles? However, the more we read this, reread it, meditate on it, study it, it is significant. Let me give you three reasons why. That first response of mine, and I was off base. Number one, it's the only destructive miracle that Jesus performs. Now, yes, other miracles have destructive elements to them, like casting a demon out, but that's to heal a guy, right? All of his other miracles are really positive. Healing a guy that's blind by giving him sight, feeding the 5,000, even calming a storm or walking on water, those might not help the disciples physically, but it certainly helps them emotionally and spiritually. It helps them to trust in Jesus as their security and their God. Every other miracle is positive. This one is destroying something, and that's all that it's doing. Second, what's the second reason this is significant and not small? This is the last miracle that Jesus does. By that I mean the last one in his earthly ministry before the crucifixion and the resurrection. Obviously, the resurrection is the miracle of all miracles. But in his ministry, before the end of this week, before crucifixion and resurrection, this is the last one that he does. So, wow, maybe there is something significant if at first glance it's pretty small, but it's the last one that he does. Third and finally, it's the only one he does during Passion Week. What is Passion Week once again? His entry into Jerusalem on Sunday, his teaching in Jerusalem, his last supper with the disciples, his crucifixion, his resurrection. As Ryan said a month or two ago, the Gospels really focus on the Passion narratives. They're really like introductions that lead up to the Passion Week. And that's where the bulk and the climax of each of the four Gospels is. So in Mark, 10 chapters on his first three years of public ministry, 
Six chapters on the Passion Week. You get this idea? Gospels are not his three years evenly laid out or the Passion Week would be all of seven verses. No, the Gospels are really all about Passion Week. So this is the only miracle he does in Passion Week in several days of teaching at Jerusalem. There's gotta be something significant there. So that was my first response. Here's my second. I thought, even if it is significant, it's kind of petty for Jesus to do this. He's picking on a poor fig tree for doing what? Uh, For not producing fruit, and it's apparently common knowledge that it's not the time for fruit. So man, how petty of God to kill a fig tree for even just being normal not producing the fruit that was gonna come later in the summer. Well, a couple answers here. First, the text doesn't say that Jesus expected fruit on the tree, as in ripened fruit ready to eat. Look in your Bibles on your lamps, look at verse 13. He, Jesus, went to see if he could find anything on it. The Greek word here translated anything means just that, something, anything. So here's the deal, fig trees would sprout buds, fruit, figs, and it would become ripe in August. So what month are we in right now? Well, remember, it's Passion Week, it's Easter, that's April. It's long before the fruit is due. However, in March, some buds of fruit that would become figs, not as nice as the August ones, would grow from the old wood, not the new branches coming in the spring, but the old wood that was left over from last year. And by the end of March, by early April, they wouldn't be big, they wouldn't be fully developed, but they'd be about the size of maybe an almond nut. They weren't the best tasting, but you could still satisfy some hunger by taking some of these early pieces of fruit and not even fully developed. You could chew it for a while and spit it out, or you could chew them and swallow them, um, and it would stave off your hunger until you could get a regular meal. So Jesus is looking for a snack, basically because he hasn't eaten, he's hungry, and the meal's later in the day. But he doesn't even find these little buds on this tree. And so, of course, uh, he curses it. The second answer is this. It really isn't about whether the fig tree produces fruit. This isn't about syncing up a tree with Jesus' timetable for hunger and eating. It's about something symbolic. And what he sees is no fruit at all not even these small almond-sized buds that he could chew. So Jesus basically says this, no buds now, no fruit later in the summer. Oh, and no indication of any kind of fruit now, no fruit ever from this tree. Look at verse 14. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say that. Do you catch those words, no one and ever? It's like a double emphasis. No way will this tree ever produce fruit again. It's done. In fact, let's jump down to verse 20. 20 is in the third part of the sandwich, the bottom piece of bread, but we're going to jump down there just for a second. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, this is the next day, again coming from Bethany into Jerusalem, they saw the fig tree and it was withered away to its roots. So you guys know about plants, sometimes leaves can wither, give it a year or two, it bounces back, it looks great. If the roots are dead, the whole thing's dead. And Mark is careful to tell us this really was a miracle 
There was no fruit, and so Jesus said, there will never be any fruit ever again from this tree. I think the disciples would have thought, I bet you this is symbolic. I bet you he's trying to teach us something, and I think he is. So here's our key question here. If it is symbolic, and that's our guess, in what way is the tree symbolic? All right, let's find out the answer to that question by reading the middle part of the sandwich. This is the meat, the cheese, the onions, the peppers, and again, your favorite sauce. This is the real bulk of what's happening in Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 15. They came to Jerusalem. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. I got to hit pause again. Give you a little running commentary here. We often think that in this so-called cleansing of the temple, Jesus came, saw a few people at a few tables that were making money and just greedy, taking advantage of people that needed to purchase animals for sacrifice. So in one corner of one part of a, a courtyard, he overturned a couple tables, kicked a couple sellers out. Maybe it affected 10 or 20% of the temple. Everyone else looks on kind of shocked, but then they keep going about their business. That's what we tend to think. It's not what the text says. He drove out the sellers and the buyers. Let's keep going. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. To get the feel that you're going through class after class, kind after kind of people involved in temple activity. Then we hit verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. I think commentators are right in saying, this is probably the priests. It was below their dignity to actually sell doves or animals. Uh, they left that to someone else, but they were responsible for having holy, sacred, uh, clean utensils to carry things back and forth, whether animals, uh, Grain offerings, wine offerings, money. They'd be moving things back and forth out of different parts of the temple. So he's not allowing them to do their job. In short, Jesus is shutting down the whole temple. Verse 17, he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of, of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it. They were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So here's what we're going to call this middle section of the sandwich. We're going to say the temple is not cleansed. If you've got a study Bible, maybe you're looking at one now or you've got one at home. Study Bibles often do this. They'll take a, a story or a parable or a paragraph in the Gospels or anywhere else, and the Study Bible will put a header in, you know, separated by a line space, bold print. You can tell it's the Study Bible committee. It's not part of God's inspired word. They're kind of guiding you to let you see the topic that you're about to read about. And almost every Study Bible I've looked at has this as a header. Jesus cleanses the temple. I'm going to propose to you that something very different happens here, and it's even the polar opposite of cleansing. So we'll get to that in a minute. 
I already gave you a little bit of a running commentary on these verses. Uh, he didn't, again, overturn one or two tables. Let's look at verse 17 more specifically. He was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. That phrase, is it not written, what's that gonna make us think of? It's gonna make us think of Old Testament. And sure enough, we're right. He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's actually quoting from two different prophets and Jesus is joining them together, making us look back at each one of them. The first quote is from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. Uh, you may want to turn there. I'm not going to give you a whole lot of time, but we'll put it up on the center screen. Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. I'm going to start reading a verse before that, at verse 6. So here's what Isaiah says, or what God says through Isaiah. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant. Verse 7, these, what's the these? Well, that's the foreigners, non-Israelites. I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The end of verse 7, that's what Jesus quotes. That passage in Isaiah is certainly about the temple. In the Old Testament, there are several synonyms or words for the temple. One of them is house, like the house or the house of the Lord or the house of God or God's house, and we've got that here in Isaiah 56. Confirm that, in Isaiah 56, we've got God's holy mountain. Well, there's only one holy mountain, and it's Mount Zion in Jerusalem associated with the temple. Here are the two things I want you to see about these verses in Isaiah, though. First, when God sets things right, or when people worship as they ought, temple worship includes foreigners. Again, non-Israelites or people that are not Jewish. So probably the vast majority of us in this room, people groups of the world. That was not happening in Jesus' day. In fact, Gentiles were barred from entering the temple itself on pain of death. Second thing to notice in these two verses in Isaiah, in verse seven, house of prayer occurs two different times. And it's pretty close proximity. It's all in the same verse. Usually when an author or a speaker says something twice and it's kind of in the same 20-second time span, it's emphatic. And I think it is here in Isaiah. And how does verse 7 end? God says this. Here's the one thing I want the temple to be known by. Meaning even if you're not worshiping, you're observing, and you're not part of the worshipers at the temple. God says, I want you to say this when you observe temple worship. That is a house of prayer. And that wasn't happening in Jesus' day. Instead, it was a place of commerce where people got greedy and said at the front doors, you can't come in here unless you pay money to get an animal to sacrifice. Here's the second quote. 
This second quote is like 10 times more startling, more shocking, more in-your-face confrontation than the first one. The second one comes from Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11. I'm actually going to read starting at Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1. Jeremiah 7 is called the Temple Sermon. So in your whole Bible, both Testaments, there is one whole chapter that commentators say is the Temple Sermon. What God says about his temple, and it's in Jeremiah chapter 7. Everyone would have known that listening to Jesus, that he's quoting apart from Jeremiah 7. They would have all thought, the temple sermon is what he's talking about. So I'm going to read for you most of the temple sermon, not all of it, but I'll start at verse 1 here. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord. All you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This must have been a phrase that people said. This, maybe they were pointing to it, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. God says, don't trust in that. Verse five, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice, one with the other, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, if you do not go after other gods, which is going to be to your harm, uh, gods you have not known, verse 7, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Verse 8, behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and you say, we're delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? There's the piece that Jesus quotes. In your eyes, behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Let me read for you three more verses into the temple sermon. Verse 12. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now because you have done all of these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, time after time through the prophets, you did not listen. When I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, the temple in Jeremiah's day, and in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. Now, what happened at Shiloh? That name might not mean anything to you, so let me give you a brief recap of history here. In 1 Samuel, the first four chapters, when they came into the land, God had the Israelites set up the tabernacle. What was a tabernacle? An elaborate tent, basically a portable temple. Long before the temple was built, he had them set up the tabernacle in Shiloh. 
So what was Shiloh supposed to be? Shiloh was supposed to be a place of worship until the temple would be built in Jerusalem. What happened in reality? In reality, the Israelites were wicked. They committed idolatry, turned away from the Lord their God. God sent the Philistines in to destroy Shiloh. So do you get what Jeremiah is saying or what God is saying through Jeremiah? What happened at Shiloh is about to happen again in Jeremiah's day. And sure enough, it did. The Babylonians come in, they destroy Jerusalem and the temple. Okay, what is Jesus saying in Mark 11 by quoting the temple sermon? This is about to happen a third and final time. It happened at Shiloh because of your wickedness. It happened in Jeremiah's day when the Babylonians came in. And in the same thing is happening today where people are driven by money and not worship, repentance, faith, prayer. The temple is not cleansed in Mark chapter 11. It is ended. We cleanse things that we care about and value and want to keep. I cleanse my car. How do I do that? Well, I have oil changes done to keep the engine running cleanly. And I wash the outside of the car because I don't want it to rust. So I cleanse it because I want it to be around for a long time. Jesus wasn't trying to fix the temple, thinking it was a little bit blemished and just needed a little bit of work. He shut it down for a whole day. Granted, the next day they probably were back to usual operations. But in closing it down for a whole day, everything down, Jesus was giving us a foretaste, a foreshadowing of what would happen in AD 70 when Rome, just like the Babylonians did in Jeremiah's day, when Rome came in and destroyed the temple. Now, let's return to the fig tree. We're ready for the third and final part of Mark 11, the sandwich there, for some lessons on what was missing more specifically in the temple. We know it wasn't producing fruit, just like the fig tree didn't produce fruit. Jesus didn't see anything encouraging in the fig tree, therefore he ended it forever. He didn't see anything encouraging in the temple, therefore he ended it forever. We're going to title this final section, The Ending Means a Longing for a Beginning. So let me read for you our final third of the sandwich, the return to the fig tree. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered, and he said to him, Rabbi, look. The fig tree that you have cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven will forgive you your trespasses. That's a really hard text to understand. I'm gonna try to break it down into three questions, and I'm not sure we'll completely understand it by the end of our next five or 10 minutes, but at least we'll have some answers to some of our questions. First question is this, what is the phrase, this mountain mean. Uh, here's a case where the word this, kind of a simple pronoun, usually doesn't figure that importantly into a text, is of supreme importance. 
Let's pretend the word this isn't there, which is what some interpreters do. So if this is not there, then we've got something like a mountain or any mountain. What might that mean? Well, let me act for a few minutes or a minute. Claim your mountain. Whatever your mountain is. For some of you in this room, it's unemployment. For some of you, you need a spouse, husband, or a wife. For some of you, it's a medical illness. For some of you, maybe it's infertility. You can't have kids. You know what? Claim that mountain. Believe that the negative part of that mountain is going to get cast into the sea. And if you don't doubt, that's the only condition God asks of you. If you don't doubt, God will give you the dream, the wish, the desire of your heart. Just don't doubt. Can't promise it'll be tomorrow. It might be next month or next year, but God will give you. In fact, ask him for something impossible. Your mom is terminally ill with cancer. It's growing. The doctors say there is no possible way she'll, she'll live more than the next six months. Ask God for something impossible. That's impossible. Why? Because Jesus said, this mountain, or a mountain, can get cast into a sea. That's impossible. Can we take the Sandia Mountains and dump them into the Pacific? No, that was impossible in Jesus' day. Guess what? It's still impossible in our day. We can't do it. There you go. Go forth from here and believe that God will give you whatever your heart desires. We instinctively know there's something wrong with that way of teaching this text, don't we? That would make me God, and it would make God my servant. It'd make me sovereign. It'd make me the one who determines what's best for me and my family members. And God is is like some vending machine that as long as I do that one condition, instead of doubt, I put my quarters in, he, he owes me. He needs to serve me and grant me whatever I wish. That's how important that this is here. So let's go back to that word this. Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives. I want to show you a painting of what it would look like somewhat similar to the times in Bible days. This was painted in the 1800s so it's a different temple, if you know anything about Jerusalem, not the temple that was built by Herod in the days of Jesus, got destroyed again by the Romans. Uh, but it's kind of neat to look at because today it's much more built up than this. There are things all over the place where you see countryside here. So again, painted in the 1800s, the painter is standing on the Mount of Olives. If you're in Jerusalem looking toward the Mount of Olives, you're looking toward the east. Where the painter is standing is on the Mount of Olives looking toward Jerusalem. That means we're looking west. We're also a little bit north. You can kind of tell Jerusalem is a little bit to our left. So that's your perspective. The Mount of Olives rises about 250 feet above the mount that the temple is built on. It's not anything like the Sandia Mountain Range or the Rocky Mountains, but they still call them mountains, and they're pretty big. That's the mountain Jesus is talking about, the Mount of Olives. So here's one question. Is there anywhere in the Old Testament that talks about the destruction of the Mount of Olives? And let me tell you, the answer to that is yes. 
There is a passage that talks about the destruction of the Mount of Olives. I'll get to that in a minute. Before that, I want to say this. Three times at least, maybe more, but three that I know of in the Bible, both Testaments, we're told that when God comes, and by coming he means literally, uh, in appearance, physically, when he comes to earth to end history as we know it, to set all things right, what you and I call the second coming of Christ, when that happens, God, Jesus, will appear, come down from heaven, on the Mount of Olives. And if you're in Jerusalem, you'll see him appear in the east. Again, that's the perspective of that city kind of looking toward us. And Jesus has a journey to make. It's a short journey, maybe a mile. But he'll walk toward the west, enter the city of Jerusalem, and proclaim that a new age has begun. And history, again, as we know it, comes to an end. So Zechariah chapter 14 is something I'd ask you to write down on your bulletin. We don't have time to look at it. In Zechariah chapter 14, we read about the Mount of Olives being destroyed. In what? In preparation for the coming of God, physically and literally to this earth. So why would Zechariah talk about that? Well, here's why. You look at this picture, uh, again, it's a pretty good-sized mountain, nothing like the Sandias, but still pretty good. Uh, if you're walking into Jerusalem, you've got to walk over or around the Mount of Olives. That's not all that easy. Then you can tell there's a pretty deep valley or ravine that you descend into. It's actually deeper than that in Bible times, and it was deeper there in the 1800s than it is today, so it's kind of gotten filled in as the centuries roll by. But even in the 1800s, it's pretty deep you can tell you've got a pretty steep ascent to go up to the city of Jerusalem. For you and me, it's not that easy of a hike. So in the Old Testament, when God comes to the Mount of Olives, the mountain is obliterated. It's like this. You take soil and rocks off the top of it. We're not talking 10 or 20 feet. We're talking about a couple hundred feet. You take that to fill in the valley, to bring the valley up, and you've got a great flat highway road or plain from Messiah, God himself, to walk on as he enters Jerusalem. Now, does God do that because Christ in his glorified body is going to get tired? We want to make it easier on him so it's not that bad of a hike? No, he can handle that kind of a hike, right? He's God. Why? Because the earth honors the God of the universe and honors him by making a way that is straight for him. Let me just read this for you, so listen to this. Here's how Isaiah words this very thought. Isaiah chapter 40, starting at verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Sound familiar? If you sing the Messiah, Handel's Messiah at Christmas, you're singing these lines. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So again, we don't have time to look at Zechariah chapter 14. There are actually a couple reasons given in that chapter as to why the Mount of Olives is destroyed. But one of them is, make a way for God to come into Jerusalem. That's the background of Mark 11. That's the, this mountain. So what is Jesus saying when he says, believe that this mountain, not any mountain, will be thrown into the sea? He's saying, believe 
that I will come again. Place your faith in what we call the second coming of Christ. So that was our first question, what is this mountain? It doesn't have to do with our dreams, at least our self-centered dreams, our wants. Uh, it has everything to do with God's plan and his glory. Second question, what is faith? We read about that in verse 22. We've got faith in verse 22, and we've got the word believe in verse 23. These are actually synonyms here and really in most of the Bible. If you'd like taking notes, let me have you write this. Faith, then put an equal sign and just put the one word trust. Almost always in the Bible, faith means trust. So let me try to illustrate that. In our day, we can use faith for a couple other meanings, faith or believing. And these are really not a biblical idea of faith. So here's one of them. In our day, faith or belief can mean agreeing with a fact. So I might say, I believe that Moses was an historical person. He wasn't fictional, he wasn't part of a mythology, he was real. Do you see how that's just me agreeing with what someone else presents as a fact? Um, that's not faith in the Bible. It starts with that, believing that God is real or that Christ really died on the cross and really was resurrected. So that's part of faith, but that's not what faith is limited to. Here's another way that we use faith in believing amongst ourselves which is really not in the Bible. Almost the opposite of the only believe in a fact. Faith can mean faithfulness in our day. So faith can equal faithfulness, meaning there's a lot of activity and it's all about me. So here's my example to that. I think a few of you know my favorite NFL team. In a minute, you'll all know what my favorite NFL team is. I have faith in the Green Bay Packers. I believe in the Green Bay Packers. I was born in Wisconsin. Take it in, in modern day, that is the temple. I take my sons to, on a pilgrimage to Lambeau Field. Um, every year since I was three years old, I believed in the Green Bay Packers. Every year to the day I die, I'll believe in the Green Bay Packers. However, think about it for a minute. That doesn't matter whether the Packers are good or bad in any given year, whether they merit my faith or don't merit it. It's all about me every year getting energized, resurrected in my faith for the Packers. It focuses on me. That's not faith or believing in the Bible. Faith or believing in the Bible is trust. Starts with facts that you agree with, but it's more than that. This isn't the best illustration, but it's the best I can come up with. It's something similar to this. My granddaughter, Elena, is standing on the side of a swimming pool, and for the first time, me, Grampy, I'm in the water four feet away, and I'm doing the usual hands out, jump to me thing. What am I asking her to do? Place her faith in me. I've told her I'll catch her. I'm asking her in the very depth of her heart to believe that I'll do that, to have faith in me. I'm the object of her faith. Very different than me having faith in the Packers. So, verse 22 even says, have faith in God, not have faith in yourself or have faith in your own dreams. Let's do our final question, and then we're done with this last part of the sandwich. What does the word whatever mean? This is going to come up in verse 24. And the word whatever in verse 24 is kind of confusing. Why? Because it takes it, us back to that interpretation that we've got this gut feeling about. It's not right. Let me read to you verse 24. 
Jesus says, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Here's my thesis here. See if you agree with me. Whatever never means whatever and all never means all. I had a teacher in school once that said, all means all and that's all all means. Well, I'm here this morning to disagree with my former teacher. All does not mean all, and whatever does not mean whatever. Meaning, there's always some parameter. You've got to have some context. I'll try to give you a couple examples here. A number of years ago, I built a shed, actually a little garage with my son from scratch. So uh, one of the first days after the slab is poured, we're framing the shed. So I don't think I said this, but let's pretend that I did. Let's pretend we've got a, a nail gun. My son is using it, so I say to my son, whatever you do, I don't want to see your left hand within two feet of your right hand, and I don't want to see your left hand ever in front of your right hand, the nail gun being in his right hand. You get my statement? So let's say it's a Saturday, and let's say I see him worshiping Sunday morning the next day, and... And to one of the songs, he's clapping his hands, which means they're together. Is he disobeying me? Do I get mad at him? Of course not. But yet I said, whatever. No, he knows without me saying it. I don't have to spell it out. He knows what I mean is, whatever you do when we're using the nail gun, you're never to have your hands close together and your left one is in front of the nail gun. He knows that. Whatever does not mean whatever, as in anything under the sun. Same thing with all. All never means all. I'll try to give you a quick example here, and we'll start to wrap it up and talk about prayer for a few minutes. Let's pretend you're a father and your daughter has grown up, she's married, she's uh, got a child of her own, and maybe your daughter's going through a, a state of depression and your daughter says, um, nobody really cares about anything that I do. And as her father, what you say is, Susie, I care about all that you do. Now, does that literally mean all? No, you're not deceiving her. You're not lying to her. What you mean is, I care about all you do that's significant. I care about your marriage and your parenting and even your hobbies uh, and your interests. Um, I care about all that you do. If that were literal, you as the dad would care about when she gets a pedicure, whether the color she picks is raspberry red or pearly white. You don't care about that. There are lots of things you don't care about in her life. You don't literally care about all that she does. You care about the more significant things. So how does that affect our text here? The whatever in verse 24 must be considered along with the thing that came immediately before it, which is what? A reminder of Christ's second coming, the destruction of a mountain, a particular mountain, and the ushering in of an age that we all long for. So these whatever things, man, are there, are there, is there a bullet point list of things associated with that? There is. I'll give you a few in a few minutes. So let's close by saying, what is prayer? If Jesus is talking about prayer, that was one of the fruits that was lacking in the temple, and he wants to see that. What is prayer? Remember, prayer is talking to God. The Bible is God talking to us. Prayer is us talking to God. I'd encourage you guys to do this. Take a journal, sheet of paper, open up a document. The header is, what is prayer? 
Now start making a bullet point list of things from the Bible, not books about prayer, but as you read the Bible, answer that question. I'll try to give you a head start today. Here's one thing that you would put at the top of that list. Prayer is longing. We tend to think prayer is requests, right? Isn't it a shopping list of all the things that I or my relatives need? Oh, that's part of prayer, but that's way down the line in terms of priority. One of the things way above our requests is that prayer is longing for God's coming, for Christ's coming, and all the things associated with that. Maybe the second bullet point, and then I'll end there, is this. What is prayer? It's theology. Now, by that bullet point, I don't mean you've got to go read books by scholars. I mean simply do like a read-through-the-Bible-in-one-year deal, and as you come across God's attributes, you write them down. That is the best way to change your prayer life for the better, study who God is. Here's what one author said. How we pray is largely determined by what we believe about the God who hears us. Great quote. And this really goes hand in hand with longing. If you don't have faith in the coming king, if you don't long for his coming, you haven't learned who the king is. Or to look at the very last verse, if you can't forgive others, you probably haven't learned that God is a forgiving God and maybe you haven't been forgiven by him. If you can't forgive others, there's something missing in your understanding of God. That's really where things should start. So let's look back at that idea of longing one more time. I told you I'd give you a list of things that would be associated with the coming of Christ, what we call the second coming. Here's a small list. When Christ comes again, from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, we'll have a new home. We'll have new family members, brothers and sisters in Christ that we haven't met, some from 2,000 or 3,000 years ago. That's going to be pretty cool. There'll be no more sickness. A thousand times better than that, there won't be any more sin, no more darkness, no more bitterness, no more selfishness, no more hatred in the very deepest parts of our hearts. That's what we should be longing for. That's part of the whatever that we request of God. Get rid of that stuff. Ryan said this a few weeks ago. Jesus came to defeat an enemy even more powerful than Rome. Man, that is so true. What are our prayers about? Our prayers are all too often about Rome. About the community, city, home, workplace that we live in. We start our prayers that way. We say amen. We end our prayers that way. Jesus is reminding us in Mark 11, there are more important things than those requests. And the most important is his coming. What's the best thing about his coming? We see Jesus himself physically. We can look in his eyes, look on his face. We can experience God's attributes live, in person, in front of us. So I'll close with a neat story I came across. I think it's a fictional story, but it's got a great lesson it goes like this. There was a king, and he came across an orphan boy, two or three years old, that was blind, blind from birth. So the king adopts the orphan boy. The king gives the orphan boy the best rooms in the palace, the best education, good friends as he's growing up. Does all these things for the, for the boy, but most of all, the king adopts the boy as his son and spends time with the boy. So he doesn't send him off to boarding school Every day, the king spends time with his newly adopted son. And the son 
the orphan grows to love his father, the king. Is it because his father gave him gifts? Not really. I mean, those were good and appreciated by the orphan, the blind boy, but he saw way beyond the gifts and could see the heart of his father. Well, at age 20, surgeons figured out how to cure the boy of his blindness. So at 20 years old, the boy could see for the first time in his life. And the surgeons say, man, what are the first things on your list of things to see? You've got cities in this world. You've got museums and artwork to look at. You've got mountains and oceans to go see. And the boy said this, the only thing I'm interested in seeing is looking into the face of my father, looking into his eyes and beholding the face of the one I've come to love. That's the kind of thing Jesus is talking about. So bow your heads with me, let's pray. Jesus, you are the son of God and God the son, our savior and our Lord. You are the God of the universe. You are the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the ending. Help us to long more for your coming again. You are the lamb and the lion of Judah, of Israel, and of the church. You have taken Jew and Gentile and brought them together into one people. In fact, it is your wish that all peoples of the earth bend the knee and confess with their mouths that Jesus is Lord. Jesus, all of my trust is in your blood. Because of what you did, not because of what we do. Because of what you did, no wrath remains for us to face. We are sheltered, as we'll sing, by your saving grace. This, Jesus, grace, your grace, is the sweetest of all sounds, and we thank you for that this morning. Amen.